Well, thank you, Roger. Shalom. Shalom. It is wonderful to be back here at Wayside Chapel. Juice for Jesus has been many times. I think I've been three times in the past decade, and I always look forward to it because I know this is a church that, number one, loves the Jewish people and prays for the salvation of Israel. And so when I come in a little way, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. But that's always a good thing to know. And I've met many of you already who have been supporters of Jews for Jesus. But some of you perhaps have never even heard of an organization such as Jews for Jesus. And to you, that sounds a bit contradictory. Jews for Jesus. Sounds like vegetarians for meat, you know? (laughs) But of course, most of you will remember that not only is Jesus himself a Jew, the disciples, Peter, John, James, all the writers of the New Testament, with the possible exception of Luke, were Jews. And we know that Luke was a doctor, so who knows? <laughs> this, is, uh, this is something that should be known by all people, but seems to be a mystery to many. And one time a guy came up to me, a Jewish guy, and he said, how can you be a Jew for Jesus? I said to him, well, Jesus was Jewish, right? He thought a minute, he said, yeah, Jesus was Jewish, but then he converted and became a Catholic. (laughs) So there's a lot of misunderstanding out there, and we're doing our level best to make it known that you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus. In fact, we like to say Jesus made us kosher. Jesus makes all of us kosher. That is acceptable, clean before God. He's the only way that we can be. I'm glad to have with me one of my colleagues from Jews for Jesus, Don Bradford. Can you wave, Don? Are you here? There he is way in the back. And you'll want to meet with Don at the literature table out in the, in the foyer after the service. I, um, I just got back from Israel. Uh, our largest branch of Jews for Jesus is now in Israel. And uh, it's a very tumultuous time in uh, the land. Uh, There's, of course, the existential threat of Iran and the concern, the fear that most Israelis have concerning this deal that's being struck on uh, nuclear weapons with Iran. And uh, so that's an issue that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, There's a great divide among the majority that are secular and a very small but vocal religious minority. And while I was in Israel, there were two terrorist actions taken by Jews, by religious Jews. One resulted in the loss of a little Palestinian baby. Uh, that was burned alive. And another was the the death of a 16-year-old girl in Jerusalem who was stabbed in the back multiple times by a religious Jewish man who opposed her marching in a gay parade. So you can see that all of the complexity and all of the issues that we struggle with here in many respects are part and parcel of what life is like in Israel. I go to Israel regularly not only to meet with our staff but also to see my parents who moved there in 1989 and are themselves Israeli citizens. And there's a great, uh, a lot going on, but there's also a great deal of openness. And right now, as I speak, there are teams of Jews for Jesus out on the beaches of Ashdod and Ashkelon. We are having our uh, Behold Your God evangelistic outreach on the South Shore. Uh, This has been planned for several years now, and last summer it was supposed to happen, but you might remember what was going on in Israel last summer. The Gaza uh, war broke out just before we were about to have 
this evangelistic campaign. And Ashdod and Ashkelon are right next to the Gaza Strip. And so all of the bombs that were coming out of Gaza into the land of Israel, the majority of them fell on Ashdod and Ashkelon. And people were staying in the house. They weren't going to the beaches or the shopping malls. And many of them were even going up north to visit family and friends to get out of that hot zone. And so we felt we had to cancel it. Now with the relative calm, uh, just this past week that evangelistic outreach has started. We have 24 people regularly out on the streets sharing the gospel. On the first two days of the campaign, 45 Israelis gave us their names and addresses and phone numbers to receive a New Testament and to begin a study course with Jews for Jesus. And this is just indicative of the general openness that we're having. Uh, Our Moish Rosen Center, which is in Florentine, a section of Tel Aviv that kind of is akin to uh, Greenwich Village in New York. You know, it's where the young people hang out, where all the coffee shops are, and it's got a different vibe to it. And anyway, our Rosen Center has become a magnet for young people, and we've been having activities, art shows. Uh, Just recently, we had an art show where over 300 Israelis came in one night knowing that it was a gospel art show. And uh, each one of them was able to receive a gospel track and a cookie and uh, to, see, to see what was going on. And, and 31 of them agreed to enter into regular Bible study with this. So there's, there's this contrast of, of upheaval and fear and uncertainty and great openness to the gospel. I'm so excited and I want to ask you to pray for the ministry of Jews for Jesus. Let me just give you one story that happened while I was there. Um, you guys support a ministry called One for Israel, which is primarily an online ministry to Israelis. They have a bunch of different Hebrew websites. And the two guys that run that program are close partners with Jews for Jesus. And one contact came through and, uh, uh, our, our branch leader, Dan Sarad, received a phone call from one of the guys at One for Israel saying, hey, this guy contacted us. He's from a religious background, but he's in the army and he's been reading the New Testament and he wants to get together and he lives in your town in Petatikva. Well, Dan went to meet with this guy, and sure enough, he was wide open to the gospel. He had a chance to pray with him to receive the Lord. And that very day, Dan took this young man to a soldier's Bible study that was taking place at the Rosen Center there in Florentine. He met all these other guys, you know, and they're sitting writing down each other's phone number in their phones. And and the very next week, I heard that this guy was at the Shabbat dinner that we hold every Friday night at the Rosen Center. So this is just an example There are salvation stories that are happening. The gospel is being proclaimed in the midst of great conflict and fear. And we want you to pray for the ministry of Jews for Jesus in the land of Israel. Now, also during the summer, we had a number of evangelistic outreaches in Europe. We have branches in England, France, Germany, and Hungary, as well as in the former Soviet Union. And one of our most um, successful campaigns was in Budapest, which is a very fast-growing branch. We have eight full-time staff there. And, but one of the things that was indicative of that campaign was that we were having to face that old-world anti-Semitism that Europe is so famous for. And uh, there's a growing nationalism in Hungary. And when 
uh, Hungarians see Jews, oftentimes they see us as interlopers. Or maybe there's an anti-Israel sentiment and they say, go and, and, and make peace with Gaza, you know, to Hungarian Jews. And uh, this, is a, this is a problem for us. And uh, I know that there were some anti-Semitic incidents here in San Antonio. So we do see anti-Semitism on the rise in certain sectors, but no more so than in Israel. And so we want to pray, I mean, I mean in, in Europe. And so we want to pray especially that God would give us grace as we face the anti-Semitism, which produces a lot of fear in the hearts of Jewish people there, and flight to Israel. In, in France, in particular, there's been a, an increase in immigration from f- French Jewish populations into the land of Israel. And uh, so, I mean, I, I can take a lot of time to talk about all the amazing things that are going on. Just one more thing I want to mention, though, and that is a brand new project that we launched just recently called Multitudes. Multitudes has produced 20 original pieces of art to illustrate the Gospel of Matthew and to connect the Gospel of Matthew, which is a very Jewish gospel, with the Hebrew Scriptures through the prophetic word and the backgrounds of that text. And so we have a wonderful new book that we produce, which is actually the Gospel of Matthew, kind of a coffee table uh, variety. And then, and then each, uh, each of the chapters has an amazing original painting uh, with Hebrew text that bring you back to an understanding of the Hebrew roots of this amazing gospel. And uh, we've had this not only in coffee uh, table book form, but also as a calendar, but we've also been showing this art in various places. It was launched internationally in San Francisco, and we had hundreds of people coming out to view the art in the gallery, and uh, I was standing next to one person who was uh, talking to me, a Christian, a supporter, asking me, why, why, why do you like this particular piece of art? It was from Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, and the Aramaic letters were coming up out of the mosaic tiles, and mosaic tiles were very common in Jesus' day as a form of art, and I think it's a very creative way of, of emphasizing that, and And this Christian said, uh, I love that piece of art too. Do you think that modern Israelis would be able to read that and understand what it says? And a woman to the other side of me said, we can. And so we're drawing Israelis. Even in San Francisco, we had an opening in New York uh, just last month, the grand opening in, in one of the galleries in Chelsea. There are over 500 people that came to that gallery opening. The owner said to me, we've never had such a big opening. And there were so many Jewish people there. In fact, I met a guy and got a chance to share the gospel with him. His name was Robert Solomon. And he said, I'm the grandson of the father of Petatikva. Now, Petatikva is a major city. It's where our staff live. And so when I mentioned that to them, they were so excited. They say, we all know who Moshe Solomon is. We sing songs. The kids in the school, elementary schools, learned about Moshe Solomon. And here his grandson was at our art show in New York and Chelsea. And as an artist was tremendously open to the gospel. And not only did I have a chance to share with him and get his details for further contact, but he spent 45 minutes talking with the artist, with Steffi Rubin, who's one of our founders. And she got a chance to use that artwork to explain the gospel. So we're really excited about some of the creative things that God is doing, the opportunities, uh, and this is a great season for us in Jews for Jesus. And, uh, you know, um, it is a, it's an important season for uh, the entire Jewish community because coming up this 
uh, Sunday, this following week, we begin the High Holy Days on the Jewish calendar. And uh, you maybe have heard a little bit about some of the speculative things that are going on. Books have been written. People are worried. You know, blood moons are, are you know, the red moons are shining and the shofars are blowing. And it's, uh, it's quite a, a, a crazy time for many people. I want you to know that, and I hope I'm not disappointing too many of you, I think that a lot of the things that have been said are, are highly speculative. There are two places in the Bible where red moons, a moon turned to blood, are mentioned, one in Joel and one in the book of Revelation, and uh, it doesn't necessarily refer to lunar eclipses. And so we have to be aware of trying to make too much out of what the Bible says. And we're going to talk today about the High Holy Days, which is part of all of this. I remember back in 88, there was a book that was circulating, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Again on Rosh Hashanah, 1988. In 1989, the book went on sale real cheap. (laughs) So we have to be careful not to say more than what the scriptures say, but the scriptures say a whole lot. And I hope that you'll be encouraged to see what the scriptures actually do tell us concerning the high holy days on the Jewish calendar, which begin, as I said, at sundown a week from today. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me in there to Leviticus chapter 23. And I don't know when the last time it was that Roger preached from the book of Leviticus, uh, but you can count on whenever you want to have a a festival uh, on the Jewish calendar, this is the first place to go because all seven of the festivals on the Jewish calendar are mentioned in this text. And so we're just going to look at two of those seven, the high holidays of Yom Truah, that's the Hebrew, or Rosh Hashanah, which is more commonly called today in the Jewish community. Yom Truah means the, the day of blowing of trumpets. Rosh Hashanah means the head of the months or the Jewish New Year. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a second. But in verse 23 of Leviticus 23, it says the following. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, in the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Well, that's all it says. And uh, of course, there are many other passages in the scriptures that kind of illuminate that. And in the Jewish Talmud, which is the commentary the rabbis wrote on this, there's a lot of detail in, uh, in terms of what God wanted the people of Israel to do, what the traditions of the Jewish people developed into in terms of this holy day. But uh, first of all, you notice that it's called Rosh Hashanah, or uh, the Jewish New Year, in common parlance here in America and literally around the world, the the head of the months. And yet, what did uh, Moses say here in Leviticus? That it was the first of the seventh month. So you say, David, how is it that the first day of the seventh month is the Jewish New Year? Good question. I'll tell you. I don't know. (laughs) There's about three or four different reasons that rabbis will give for why it is that we call the first day of the seventh month the new year. 
most common explanation is that while Nisan is the first month uh, and the first of Nisan begins the religious new year, that this is the civil new year. And so it was celebrated in Israel as such, many other kinds of explanations. But the point is, this is what is developed. And as we greet one another, and I would encourage you, by the way, if you have a Jewish friend, go out to a well-stocked book uh, card shop this week. Grab a Rosh Hashanah card write something like this in there every time I think of you I remember that God is faithful to his promises God bless you happy new year and send it and this will be a wonderful encouragement to your Jewish friend that you care about them and that you understand the importance of this day and so we, we greet one another in the Jewish community by saying Lashana Tova to a good year. May this new year be filled with health and happiness for you and your family. The longer version of that is Lashana Tova Tiketevu, which is may your name be inscribed for another good year. And according to Jewish tradition, this uh, rest and remember, those are the key words that the Bible tells us, rest and remember, this setting the, the time aside and then reflecting is because in the heavens, God opens up the book of life. And we want our names to be inscribed in the book of life. And so that's the greeting, may your name be inscribed for another good year. And according to this tradition, at the end of Yom Kippur, which we'll be getting to later on, that book of life is closed. And so we want during this period in between Rosh Hashanah, uh, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, for our names to be written once again. And once the book's closed, if it's not in there, you're in big trouble. Well, this is the sense. It's the tradition. Of course, there's nothing in the scriptures about this, but this is what is commonly taught in the Jewish community. But resting and remembering is something that all of us should recognize the value of, don't you think? You know, we live in such busy lives. We live, uh, the cycle uh, just has us grinding, grinding out, doing this, doing that. And so God knows us and he wants us to, to pull back from that every now and then and, and to rest, to, to stop the normal pace of things, to give time and attention to him. And I know that's what we're supposed to be doing at least when we come to church. But there are special days. There are special times that all of us need to rest. And when we do, it gives us the space in our minds to remember, to reflect on our lives and on what we're doing. And, and, and if we're really pleasing God, if we're really obeying, if we're walking with him. And this is exactly what Rosh Hashanah is supposed to be because it brings us right into this period of time called the... The, uh, the Yomim Yomorim, which is the, the days of awe, those days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur when we're to reflect on our lives and whether or not we're following in obedience to God. And the call to remember this goes to the name of the, of the uh, holiday from a biblical standpoint, the uh, Yom Truah. How are we to rest and remember? Through the blowing of trumpets. And you know, of course, that we're not talking about the silver 
uh, instruments that we play in a marching band, the, the brass-plated uh, trumpets or, or, or cornets or one of those instruments, but rather this instrument, the shofar, which is an actual horn of a ram that's been hollowed out. And this has been used since ancient times in Israel to mark out special seasons to call Israel to battle, but also to call Israel to worship. And so this is a normal shofar. The one that you see on the screen is called a Yemeni shofar, obviously a bigger ram, stretched out much longer. And the tones vary, but um, I can assure you that the use of the ram's horn was not selected for its aesthetic value. Okay, and I'm going to demonstrate that so you will understand, all right? But you have to imagine that you're not seated at Wayside Chapel in the sanctuary, but you're standing out as a pilgrim, having come up to Jerusalem to worship, and you're outside. And if you've never been to Jerusalem, I really encourage you to go. It's an amazing sight, but surrounded as it is by these rocky hillsides, the, you know, the valleys uh, that the city is up on a hill, you can see, and the sound is, of all the priests along the top of the temple, the, the parapet, and, and the sound of the shofar echoing off the uh, rocky valleys and all throughout, you're going to hear this. get your attention, right? Uh, there's a point in the Talmud where the rabbis are debating, you know, because it's a, it's a mitzvah, it's a good deed to listen to the sound of the shofar in Rosh Hashanah. Every, everybody's supposed to do it. But they say, well, what should happen if a man thinks he's fulfilling the mitzvah of listening to the shofar, but only afterward discovers that all along it was just the braying of a donkey? <laughs> so even the rabbis recognize the aesthetic limitations of the shofar, but that, that sound is supposed to do something. It's supposed to call us to attention supposed to get us focused on what it is that we're all about in this, in this holiday. And the holiday is resting, remembering, reading the scriptures, allowing God to speak to us, to prepare our hearts for the upcoming uh, holiest day, which is Yom Kippur. And one of the scriptures that we read in the synagogue at this season is what's called the Akedah. That's what it's called in the Jewish community. It's the story of the binding of Isaac. And you'll remember what a powerful story this is for all who love the Lord, but especially for the Jewish community. And there's such a debate today about what the significance of this means. Uh, one of the most common interpretations of Genesis 22 among the rabbis is God was teaching Israel, we don't believe in human sacrifice which is kind of interesting in light of the fact that that's exactly what God told Abram to do to begin with. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. God always wanted us to know, I know what I'm doing. I know he's your only son. I know you love him. Take him and journey to Mount Moriah, which is actually ultimately where the temple itself was to be built, not evident then, a long journey, he went, he saddled his donkey. You know, he did all the things that you have to do to obey. Obedience is usually not the big thing. 
It starts with the small. You know, we don't obey because we, 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 we think it's all about the big thing, but we have to start with the small. Do you pray? Do you read the Bible? Do you have a regular devotional life? How can you obey God in the big things when we can't obey him in the little things? So Abraham did those little things. He, he got up in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took the wood. He took the sun. He started off on the journey. So those little things led to the big thing. As he goes up the side of the mountain, he says to his servants, wait here, and I and the boy, the lad, Naar, he's a young man, probably about 16 years old, will return to you. So he believed that even though he knew what God had asked him to do, that Isaac was going to return with him. So he gets up to the top and Isaac asks, asks that question, you know, I see the wood, I see the knife, but where's the sacrifice? Good question. He's starting to get nervous maybe. And uh, God himself shall provide, says Abraham. And God did. But what, a, what an amazing thing. It wasn't along the way. It wasn't before the altar was built. But at the very greatest point of need, as Isaac, submitting willingly, I would say, in the end, bound with cords on the altar, Abraham, hand with knife, stretched up, ready to slay his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. All of a sudden, here's the voice of the Lord from the angel of the Lord. Abraham, Abraham, do not lift up your hand against your son, for now I know that you truly trust him. And behold, in the thicket, a, a, a ram caught by its horn. Ah, now we see the connection of the story of the Akedah to the celebration of Rosh Hashanah, the shofar. He's caught in the thicket by his horn. And therein we see the mercy of God. For the ram, not just the horn, but the entire ram itself becomes the substitute. Isaac was spared. The ram died in his place. Substitutionary atonement was established in the in the psyche of the people of Israel and as part of the drama of redemption unfolding before all of the world that God allows a substitute, the animal to die in place of the offerer. And ultimately we know there is a picture of something far greater here, isn't there? The author of Hebrews says that Abraham believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. And so he was willing to obey. But here's a painting. It might be too difficult for some of you to see, but it is a very famous painting in the Jewish community by Mark Chagall, one of the most beloved of all uh, Jewish painters. And it is the Akedah. And you can see the yellow swath at the bottom of the painting is Isaac. And Isaac is bound with cords upon the altar. The red swath is Abraham. And uh, he is looking up with knife in hand to see the angel who's calling to him to point to the left, to that little bush where there's a ram caught in the thicket. A beautiful painting, but what people don't often notice is what is happening up in the right-hand corner. Perhaps you can't see it very clearly on the slide, but looking closely, there is a crucifixion scene. You see Jesus up on the cross and blood is dripping down from the cross that forms the red that pours down off of Mount Calvary and covers Abram. Mark Chagall knew the story 
of Jesus and his sacrifice. And Mark Chagall, one of the most famous Jewish painters of history, connected the Akeda, the binding of Isaac, with the cross and the substitutionary atonement of the Messiah Jesus. Behold the lamb, not the one caught in the thicket to the left, but the one on the cross in the right-hand corner. And to me, I want so much for my people to understand what obviously Mark Chagall understood, that what God did not in the end ask Abram to do with Isaac, he himself did in sending his son, Yeshua, Jesus, to die for our sins. Isn't that amazing? And it is a picture that continues to haunt many like Mark Chagall, and some even say that he became a follower of Jesus, though it's hard to know. His grandson, David Chagall, is still living in Los Angeles and is a Jewish believer in Jesus. So there's a legacy that continues on. And so many of us Jewish people have seen the connection and recognize that when that shofar blast sounds, we know that it signaled the promise of redemption. And the Bible tells us that there's going to be another redemption fulfilled at the sound of a trumpet. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And maybe if we want to connect this holiday to eschatology, we can take that shofar and say, yes, there's another trumpet. But that trumpet... The sound of that blowing will signal mercy for those who are under the blood and judgment for those who are not. What a challenge to preach the gospel. What a challenge to reach out to our Jewish friends at this season and remind them that there is a God who loves them and who chose them and with whom their lives are still very important and special and that we love them. Let me encourage you again to do that. Eight days, not the Beatles song, eight days a week, but it's kind of like that because there really is this separation that it doesn't matter what day of the week Rosh Hashanah begins, you're kind of in a, a bubble here of the high holy days. And the blast of the shofar at the beginning, at sundown, because remember, Jewish days go from evening to morning. It's because of the way the creation story reads. There was evening, there was morning. So at sundown begins the next day. Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday and continues till sundown on Saturday. And that's the way it's reckoned in the Jewish calendar. It's a lunar calendar. It's a sundown to sundown calendar. It's a kind of a different way of thinking of time. But that whole period of time... The days of awe leading up to Yom Kippur are to be days of reflection, are to be days of solemnity. And we look now at the text of Scripture again to read what it says about the, the highest of high holy days. At the end of that eight-day period, the tenth day, verse 25 of, Levit of Leviticus 26. Verse 26 of Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. And you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on this day, this same day. For it is a day of atonement to make atonement on behalf, on your behalf before the Lord your God. So if Rosh Hashanah is about resting and remembering 
Yom Kippur is about repenting and redemption. Repentance and redemption. That word, humble your souls. That's really another way of saying repent. You know? Recognize your lowly estate. Acknowledge your own sinfulness before God. Now, for me, that has to be a daily occurrence, right? (laughs) I hope for you too. But God set apart a special day. A special day for all of the nation to do it together. Both individually and corporately. And it was led this holiday by a priesthood. And on this day, on Yom Kippur, the priest would put on his special ceremonial garment, but just the undergarment. You know, there was quite an elaborate garment that was, you know, the ephod and the breastplate with all the multicolored stones. And it was a gorgeous, gorgeous, you know, uh, expensive in, in our day. Uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't find this laying around just anywhere. It'd have to have, uh, you know, Wells Fargo protecting or something like that. But uh, it was very costly and it was very sacred. That would not be worn on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The high priest would put on this simple garment that all the priests wore. Jewish men and religious homes wear it as well now for holidays. It's called the kittel. Simple, pure white linen robe, white being a symbol of priesthood and purity. And then he would put on a various headpiece. This is just a plain white yarmulke. He has a miter on in that picture on the slide. And whereas the priests and the high priest would minister at the altar, uh, and where the showbread was and the candlesticks, the menorah, On this day, and only on this day, of all of the days on the Jewish calendar, would the high priest go behind the curtain and enter into the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies. And there, as you can see, with the the angels, the seraphim, on the Ark of the Covenant, would sprinkle blood of the sacrifice of one of the animals on the mercy seat. And all of the nation of Israel would gather outside to watch and to pray for forgiveness of sin because that's what the priest was going to do. The animal that died in place of the offer, its shed blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat with the prayers of the nations and the prayers of the priests asking God for atonement, for forgiveness, humbling our souls before him, asking him to forgive us. And... um, Actually, there was a couple of things that were happening, not just uh, the priest going into that most holy place, but also the scapegoat was another wonderful symbol and a picture. Symbols really were important part of the liturgy for Israel at this time. And so the Azazel or the scapegoat was a second animal that was actually not slain. Its blood was not shed, but you can see the hands of the high priest would be placed upon the head of this scapegoat, the second animal, and the sins confessed before the nation, uh, up in high drama and pageantry, and then the other priests would lead that animal away, and often a, a scarlet cord would be tied around the neck or around the ear of that scapegoat, and as it was led through the midst of the congregation, the people would part, the priests would take it, and they would take it out of, out of the camp, outside of where the people had gathered, out into the wilderness, 
where no one could see it and, and it would be left to wander away and ultimately I expect to die. But just this is the picture, another picture of what God does when he forgives sin. He removes it from the midst of us. He takes it away. As far as east is from the west, so far have I removed your sin from you. So there's all these pictures of God's requirement of sacrifice, but his mercy in allowing sin to be atoned for. And all of these pictures come together on this holiest of all days on the Jewish calendar, the high holy day, the only day when the priest would go into the holy of holies. And, uh, you know, there's also one other picture that I'll mention of, of the many that are there. And that is that when the priest went into the holy of holies, there was always the possibility that God would regard sin in his heart and that he would not accept the sacrifice every year. It's offered every year. There's a potential that the sacrifice would not be accepted. And so there was a sense of anticipation, expectation, awe, wonder, fear. There have been some traditions that are told that I haven't found the actual text yet that they would tie a belt or a cord around his leg and in case he were struck down, they could get him out of there. I've heard that so many times. And somebody, if you find uh, the reference, let me know. Uh, it's a nice story. Haven't found evidence for it. But the idea is there. And that is that Israel was not confident that the priest would be heard. That the sin would be atoned for. It was always a little bit of drama. And when the priest returned to us, it was like, he came back from the grave, you see. He came back to us. And of course, what an amazing picture for those of us who know our Messiah, our, our great high priest, Jesus. Not of the order of Levi, but of the order of Melchizedek. Um, there's so much that we could pause and talk about there. We don't have the time. But the pictures that God paints through the pages of the old Testament and the New Testament fulfillment are dramatic and they're powerful and they add to our understanding that God planned all this out from the beginning. And Jesus came in fulfillment of all the hope and all the promise of all the prophets. He said, I've not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. And so he did. And all of the sacrifices as well. When Jesus died on the cross, he had said beforehand, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Bible tells us that when that happened, there were signs in the sky, tombs were opened, the veil that separated us from the holy place in that temple was rent from top to bottom. Fellowship was established between God and all those who would trust in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, passing through the heavenlies, our great high priest, rose from the dead, came back out alive, which was proof positive that God had received that sacrifice, that atonement had been procured, not for another year, but once and for all. And now we see, hallelujah, that, that since Jesus predicted that the temple in Jerusalem is no more. Sacrifice no longer occurs. The Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. And Jewish people who actually believe in all of this are waiting for the rebuilding of the temple. Most have given up waiting. But the fact of the matter is that there is another temple to come, but it's not going to be God's temple. It's going to be a temple of deception. And we know that. But the fact 
fact of, his, of the matter is that God has fulfilled his promise in the coming of Jesus. And our Messiah has completed the redemption in himself and in his blood. And so today, if you're here and you've never experienced the forgiveness of God, it's already been done. There's nothing left to be accomplished for you. God did what he did not ask Abram to do in sending his son, Jesus, who died as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The binding of Jesus upon the cross fulfilled in Jesus rising from the dead. And he, our great high priest, has come back from the dead and lives forever at the right hand of God to mediate atonement and forgiveness for all who would trust in him. Just trust in Jesus. He's worthy of your trust. He alone can bring the forgiveness, the atonement that God has been speaking of since the beginning of time here in Leviticus and all the way through to this very present. And he is coming again, I believe very soon. With the blast of the trumpet, our great high priest coming in the clouds of heaven to bring us to himself fully and finally and solve all of the world's difficulties. And there are so many and they're growing. How much we need to rest and remember, to repent and experience his redemption. If you're here today and you've never had that, let me encourage you to receive God's grace and forgiveness through faith in Jesus. You might pray a prayer like this. Let's bow for just a minute. Dear God, I know that I have sinned against you. If you know that, then he knows it more. God, I want to know and experience your forgiveness and love. And I believe that in Jesus, you provided atonement forgiveness through his death and resurrection. With this prayer, I receive your forgiveness and your love in Jesus. And I thank you And if you've prayed that prayer, God is hearing you right now and he's welcoming you as only God can with great celebration. All the angels in heaven are singing a song. God, we just are so grateful for this season. We're so grateful for a time to rest and remember. In a world that's full of violence and anguish and confusion that your word is so clear that your promises are so firm and that the hope that we have of your coming to set right what is wrong is so certain give us confidence those who are your followers who are your children now lord renew our sense of confidence in an difficult time that you are on the throne that you've declared the end from the beginning that your salvation is what matters most in life and Lord give us the heart to reach out in confidence and hope and joy with this message of love to those around us for we pray in Jesus name amen I want to invite you to stand
As Pastor Pupart mentioned, if you'd like to, uh, to be a part of the ministry of Jews for Jesus, there are ushers in the back, and, but be sure to take me home with you. This is a prayer reminder card with my picture on it. We appreciate your prayers. I want to close our time together here, and you'll notice uh, there's a prayer uh, leaders here at the front, and we want to encourage you if you, God spoke to you in any particular way about something in your life that you need prayer for, whether it be uh, salvation or renewal or even healing, uh, whatever your needs are, they're here to, to pray with you, and that's important. Um, but I want to bless you, all of you, with a blessing that God gave to the sons of Aaron, the priests of Israel, in Numbers chapter 6. And he said, bless my people with this blessing, and they will be blessed. I believe that too. First in Hebrew, then in English, and then we'll be dismissed. Would you bow your heads, please? Yivarechecha Adonai vayishmarecha Yoher Adonai panavalecha vikuneika Yisaho Adonai panavalecha the same shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Bashem Yeshua, Mishichenu Sar HaShalom. In the name of Jesus, our Messiah the Prince of Peace. Amen. God bless you.